Well, folks, welcome to another edition of A Random Walk. Uh, thrilled to be here with my friend Stephanie and dive into uh, what education looks like in a post-pandemic world. Um, just a programming note, we finally got the past uh, editions and podcasts up. They should be coming out on iTunes here in the next couple of days. I will send an email to everybody letting them know what the link is, but uh, looking forward to folks engaging with that content. Um, but Stephanie is an expert in education. She's worked primarily in the K through 12 realm, uh, standing up philanthropy roundtables, initiatives around that topic. Currently leads a nonprofit of the space that's focused on promoting Catholic education. But what I've really been impressed with is just her overall view of you know, how to educate folks and what, what the world might look like in the future. So Stephanie, thanks so much for being here today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to start, you know, kind of early in your educational journey. You were a Teach for America alum, and what what inspired you to join that that program, and, and how was that for you? Uh, so I was a rhetoric major at the University of California at Berkeley, and at my graduation, um, there were three speakers, and one of the speakers gave about thirty different definitions of rhetoric, and at the end said, "Don't worry, mom, I'm going to law school." <laughs> so, I um, definitely thought I would be going to law school, but I had taken a class my freshman year in um, in urban education, and they had shown a video. This was '98 when I graduated. It was before it was the cool thing to join Teach for America. Yeah, that's really early on. That's like one of the first classes, right? Early on, I'm, I'm 44, so it was early. Oh, wow. um, and I know I have braces. It it makes me look like I'm 16. <laughs> um, so. I, uh, I had, I was inspired and I also had, um, some naive pride in that I saw these teachers completely failing, well-intentioned, and I thought I can do, I can do better than that. And then I joined, I was placed in Oakland, California, um, in this, in the second toughest high school in one of the toughest school districts in the country. Um, we had, I'll give you one scenario of one snapshot of many, many, many about the violence in my school and in my community. But um, one day, my, my first year teaching, the SWAT team was called outside of my, my school classroom. And wow. they, um, there, was, there was a kid with a sawed off shotgun, this was high school. And we, um, the SWAT team handled it. Lunch break enters. I'm going to go to a department, a, 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 an English department. I was an English teacher, an English department meeting. Not a single word was said about the fact that there was a kid with a sawed-off shotgun roaming around the school. Because why? Because that was no longer. It's like the frog that's that's getting boiled slowly but slowly. It, it had been normalized. Mm. And I, um, I was so angry at myself. I was angry at the district. I, I had, didn't have a classroom. I was in a converted garage. I, when you walked into my classroom before school opened, 187 Soto, so the previous teacher was Soto, Mr. Soto, and across the entire, on all the desks, on all the walls, it was 187 Soto. Kill the teacher. And, and I don't say that. My kids were amazing. Amazing, amazing, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful kids. Um, but the, the culture in the school, was broken and um and so i wanted to figure out how to what was wrong why was the system broken and how, how could i make a difference 
Yeah. So how long did you spend in that, in that uh, classroom? I only spent the two year commitment. And I will say that um, my parents didn't want me to do Teach for America because they had never heard of it before. My parents are immigrants. Um, they're Iraqi immigrants actually, we're Catholic Iraqis. And, um, but I said, I'm gonna do it. And um, I did it in my, my, my <laughs> the first thing I came home and I was crying and I was like, um, I wanna quit. And they, they were good parents. They said, no, you're not gonna quit. You made a commitment. It was, it was a really good life lesson for me. I will never forget that they said that. And I want to be the kind of parent that says that to their child. Yeah. Um, but only two years. Then I took a year, um, took grad school courses. Um, I was kind of living and breathing and I had no time to really think. Um, and then I went to the Kennedy School to study public policy. And so after you know, grad school and the couple of years in Teach for America, you went back into education. So what, what prompted you to kind of continue on that path, given your experiences early on? Yeah, well, if, you, if anyone's ever been to Harvard in any capacity, um, it is a place that is um, in, in a, 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 a great, like, I'll never give money to Harvard for a variety of reasons, but I had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience there. And, um, you know, I, it's kind of this panoply of speakers from all across the world. And I was like, I, I came in thinking, I want to I wanna fix a broken education system for underserved kids. But the, my first year I spent thinking about marriage and family policy. Like, how do we keep families intact? Um, I thought about, um, you know, sex trafficking. I, I mean, you just exposed. And then I took a class at the business school um at harvard business school and it was on entrepreneurship and education reform and it actually it changed my it re reminded me why i went to the to grad school and it also gave me hope that there were people across the country just a handful of them at that time who i wouldn't want to say that there were a handful there were many of them at that time who were starting schools that were serving the underserved that were getting results that were unexpected unexpectedly good and that was inspiring to me. And I thought, I think I want to stay in this field because I think there's, there's hope for it. And so what were kind of the, the key themes that allowed those schools to succeed where maybe the more status quo wasn't? Yeah. So um, Seton, just for context, we operate um, three public charter schools. Um, so these are public schools that are um, publicly funded but privately operated. And um, one of the things, like we would never, and, I, and I, I, I would love to see a show of hands, there's 18 participants, I'd, I'd love to know kind of if you ever were a teacher or you were in schools or if you were, or if you're a parent of children. Um, and I don't know if you can do that, but I, I guess I would say, I don't, I don't say this to be um, in any way uh, offensive. I think one of the hardest jobs in teaching in, in district schools is particularly difficult. And one of the reasons why it's difficult is because there isn't a lot of autonomy at the level of the school leader. So if you think about leadership being super, super important in any sector, um, if that leader doesn't have the autonomy to hire and fire their own staff, if they don't have the autonomy to make decisions around budgets, if, that, if those things are being de decided by a bureaucratic body, that is removed, far removed from the children and families that are being served, then it becomes very difficult to pivot and to make the kinds of changes 
that are needed for the children that you're serving. And it's related to COVID. So if you wanted to go there, I'm happy. Uh, no, we'll, we'll definitely get there. Um, I want to dive a little more into the ability to pivot. And, you know, that's a critical skill for any entrepreneur, but I'm sure especially in the school system. So what has Seton done? And again, Seton's the organization that you run to be able to pivot and what kind of lessons you learned to adapt the school to what you saw was necessary for, for this current generation kids? Yeah. Um, so our, our response, so I, you know, we started out at the height of the great recession. I co-founded Seton education partners. We didn't know the great recession was going to happen when I left a job that I loved, um, because I felt called to do this work. Um, and then the, the great recession hit and, um, we were a team of two people. We almost didn't make payroll three times. Um, we are in a much, much better position because we learned from that. We, we, every single year we would save. So we built a reserve. And um, so our response, we're now a team of um, 30 plus people. So if you think of, if you talk about this idea about pivoting, your ability to pivot is directly related to the size of the organizational structure, right? Yeah. So think about New York City Department of Education, because we're in three Bronx schools, a million kids. How many staff um, are staffing not only those schools, but the bureaucratic, um, the bureaucracy that overlays those schools? Yeah. That is like a freight train and in terms of its ability to pivot. Whereas our organization, 900 plus students, three schools in New York City, right? So I'm not talking about our Catholic schools across the country, but just our, our and, but even our Catholic schools, small schools, right? 250 plus kids to 500 kids. Um, one leader, right? They typically don't have, one leader, a receptionist, and they typically don't have a bunch of staff. So their ability to make decisions and pivot, like our blended learning school, so our school, one of the reasons we were able to pivot, I think very fast, faster than most people, uh, most organizations, most schools, um, is because our schools were already blended learning schools. So, so for those who are maybe describe what a blended learning school is. Sure, sure, sure. So it's in a very simple way. A very simple way to describe it is traditional teacher-led instruction in a bricks and mortar classroom, combined with online learning using adaptive or other kind of software. Mm -hmm. And by adaptive software, I mean software that moves at the pace of the child. So you can, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't the case. The, 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 the software has become so much more advanced in the last decade. Um, it wasn't the case, you know, 10, 20 years ago when I was in education um, that you had software that actually changed, adapted, based on the input that the child um, adds. And so, yeah. Sorry, um, our response, I'm gonna go back to our response. No, keep going, that's great. Yeah, so um, I would say that we, with, with 900 plus kids, or if we think about our Catholic schools, um, we have a team of seven people who manages our network of blended learning Catholic schools. Um, we, I would call us like your favorite sports car. I'm not into sports cars, but like a Mustang or a Cougar. I don't know what, what your favorite sports car is. But, their, the ability to pivot and to turn much, much easier because your staffing structure is much leaner and you also have autonomy. So that goes back to what I think is necessary for schools to be really effective, especially for underserved kids, is autonomy at the right levels. 
So what did we do? Uh, I'll, I'll give you four lessons, four principles guided our response. The first was to keep it simple. So the goal was to keep children safe and engaged um, and to keep them from losing ground until schools reopen. Um, whenever, whenever that will be in, in New York City, it's likely to be in October. In Ohio, where we have schools, um, it's gonna be beginning of the school year. And so um, the second, I, I talk about prioritizing the right C's. And what do I mean by that? Um, the first C is compassion. The second C is community. And the third C is culture. culture. And prioritizing those three C's over compliance um, was, is, was one of our mantras. Um, it, compliance is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And we just can't lose the human element that is so critical um, in, in education. And I think people think digital learning and they think, oh, you're trying to get rid of the person. Not the way we do digital learning. Digital learning in our schools, we actually use it to do small group rotations. So you think about instead of a, a teacher with one class of kids in front of him or her, you have a teacher, an assistant, and three groups of children. One group of children with their headphones doing adaptive online learning. Another group of children, say, say five to eight to 10 children, doing small group instruction with the assistant that's catered to that, that group's needs. And another group of children doing um, small group instruction with the teacher. And then, the, then they switch. And then they switch again. And so what it actually does is it leverages what only humans can do, which is coach, inspire, build relationships. Okay, computers are, they can do some motivation. We know that they can trigger certain things in your brain that make you wanna, that make you a little addicted yeah. to your phone or your computer, or your program. But it's not the same as building a relationship, a real authentic human relationship. And so, um, and then we let the computers do what they are best able to do, which is to differentiate instruction. When I was teaching, I had 30 students in my classroom. I had, this was high school, 10th and 11th grade. I had some that were completely illiterate. They could not read and write. I had others who were advanced. They were at 12th grade reading and college level reading and writing. So as a teacher, how am I gonna actually meet the needs of 30 different kids with 30 different needs? Well, technology can actually enable you to do that. And so because our schools were already robust blended learning schools doing small group instruction with, with teachers, um, we were able to actually take the program. We already knew which programs we wanted to use. We already knew which worked well for kids. And so we were able to pivot very quickly. Um, and I can talk about more about our response. We, we canceled, I think the thing that shocks people the most is we canceled um, spring break. Um, and we did that for the parents because um, all of a sudden, it was, it was 13th, March 13th, Friday, March 13th that we made the decision to shut down our schools. And we did it the day before the mayor, Mayor de Blasio shut down his schools because nearby schools had COVID infections, mm. walking distance of us. And so we said, we have to clean our building and we need to come up with a plan. We think that the schools are gonna close. So we cleaned our building, we came up with a plan very quickly and we made the decision to cancel spring, um, to cancel spring break because we knew our parents would feel abandoned and our students would feel abandoned. And so instead what we did, I mean, then you have to think about the teachers. Well, what did we do with the teachers? We kind of used, we did what I would call logistical gymnastics. We had um, every teacher say which four days, we asked them which four days do you want to take um, off 
and then we created a schedule that allowed the ones that didn't want to take spring break off to work and the others to take off their their spring break their days on different days i don't know if that makes sense if i'm being oh, clear. yeah definitely so you walk us through you know may, march 13th sounded like you guys made a decision to to, to close your schools um, and I think a lot of us have heard stories of schools that have thrived under COVID and schools that have basically collapsed and kids aren't learning. Um, what, what was your approach to this and what did you learn throughout the process to either make it successful or I don't know how it worked out for y'all? Yeah, um, so within our, with our, within our first, in our, during our first week of remote learning, 92% of our children were logging into their programs we're talking with their teachers. So we do, our teachers were doing um, twice weekly, 30 minute deep dives individually with students. We have two teachers in the classroom because New York has a very high procedure. So two teachers for every 30 kids. So one teacher for every 15 kids. And so they were doing deep dives. If a kid didn't log in um, and didn't actually do work, you can actually, the programs that we have selected, you can see how many assignments did they complete. and how much time did they spend? And you can actually tell if they were just guessing or if they were actually making intentional, um, the, the, the software actually lets, lets you know if they're guessing or they're trying mm. and um, if they're advancing. And so 92% of our kids were fully engaged. So that meant 8% were not. Those 8% we were calling on a daily basis. And that's, that's the first week of remote learning. We, the week, um, the week, so we closed. What we did is we pulled together an emergency task force with all the right stakeholders, um, a lot of stakeholders, the CAO, the CTO, the CFO, the executive director, and I, the, the lead of character initiatives, um, principals, superintendent. And then we um, sent kids home with a backpack full of books and, and two weeks worth of, of of material to work on at home in case we needed them, in case we weren't ready to go blended, and in case they didn't have computers or internet access. So our schools are 90 plus percent low income um, across the board, across our 4,000 students. And so we knew that internet access and computer access, everybody has a phone, right? And so everyone's got a phone, they can, they can access stuff. But if you have multiple kids, your phone can only do so much in terms of the software programs it can access, right? right. So some you have Chromebook for. And secondly, if you have multiple kids, if you have a second grader and a kindergartner or a second grader and a fifth grader, and you have one phone and they're supposed to go to school, um, so we created a schedule a, 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 and it included chores. Like we wanted it to be parent friendly. What we believe in is that parents are the first educators. And so um, we don't, we there there are partners. We are their partners. We are their partners, and so um, we 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 added exercise to the schedule, towards the schedules, and then a reading block, a math block, and then a social studies block that included art um, and science. And so it's all on our website, briaschools.org. Um, it's called Bria, B-R-I-L-L-A, like a Brillo pad, but it's Brilla, um, and it means shine in Spanish. And it's all on our website. We also have a, um, a pre-kindergartner, pre-kindergarten um, set of tools for, for the little ones to get ready for an opening that's going to be remote, right? Because if the kids are with us in person, 
we're actually able to teach them how to use a computer, even kindergartners. And don't, if you have children, you know they're better at you at working your cell phone, right? Um, so we did that. We got internet access for about um, a third of our families that didn't have it. And then we sent everybody home with computers. Um, and it's because our schools were already blended learning schools. We so had for, the, for the families that you mentioned, a third of your families, you're able to get internet access. For the folks who didn't have internet access, and I think you know, this is a, one of the bigger challenges that a lot of these schools have faced, how do they navigate, even with the computer, how do they navigate the, the day-to-day of, of going to school? Yeah, so we sent, that's when we sent home kids with kind of a packet of work, workbooks mm-hmm. um, that were aligned to our curriculum that we had and that we basically copied. Um, and so they had that. That was step number one. Step number two is um, phone calls. You can do FaceTime and you can do phone calls even without a Chromebook. You can do it on a cell phone. So we did right. that. And then step number three is many of the internet providers were made a decision early on to provide free internet access once COVID hit. So we leveraged our relationships with those partners. The trouble was, in you have not paid your bill, your internet bill, then they didn't want to give you the access, right? Understandably. They didn't want to say, okay, Mr. Garcia, I'm a Garcia, so I'm going to use Garcia's. Mr. Garcia, um, you know, you didn't pay your bill. Now I'm going to give it to you for free. No, I'm not going to do that, right? That's what the companies were said. People put on, not us, but people put a bunch of pressure on these companies, public pressure on these companies, and they relented. And they ended up deciding to give internet access to everyone, including people who hadn't paid their bills. Yeah. So that was, that was something that just happened that we didn't make happen. We just connected with the right people and we created a, um, a phone number where families could just call if they were having computer or tech difficulties, right? So one person from the operations team was manning that number and manning that email address. We had an email address. So you could email and you could call if you're having a tech issue. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, I'm a mentorship in person. I think you probably are too, as you're going to charter school, like to know how performance is, is tracking. Um, you know, there's been a lot of articles about, you know, two to three months lost in the education system, folks going back to school maybe a year behind next year, so that's a full summer. How have you all tracked the performance of your students and what's been the impact of this, this home experiment? Yeah. So it's interesting, if you asked our chief academic officer, um, what grade would you have given the Bria schools before COVID? He's actually a really hard grader. So I would give us an A. Um, He's like, no, I would give us a B. Um, And um, because he has really high standards, which is why we hired him. And, And you asked him, how do you feel about learning post COVID? You might think that he would say a C or a D. No, he'd say an A. Why? Because with the right team, with the right talent, you end up prioritizing what is most essential to learning, right? Which doesn't always happen in a regular school. So I'm thinking about my own daughter, um, who I would say is is, is gifted, and academically gifted, right? Um, and um, she does all the lab. She's going to um, a well-regarded public school, and um, 
they took a lot longer to make the transition, which was frustrating um, because they're a good school, but they were not used to this new reality. Yep. And um, she gets her work done in three hours. So if the average school day is six hours and she's getting her work done in three hours, of course, you need to play. You need the social interaction. You need the social emotional learning. That really matters. But if just from the chief academic officer experience, he would say yes. Now you ask our executive director, how do you feel? She's going to give you a different answer. She's going to say that Maslow's hierarchy of needs really matters. That um, if a child is not being fed, if a child is not being housed, if a child is not being loved, um, and cared for by um, an adult that isn't who isn't depressed or isn't in the hospital. We had kids, not two kids, two families of kids where the, mo there were the mother led household and the mother was in the hospital, both mothers. And we were, con we were in contact with the mother and with the kids and they had no one to bring them food. Mm. Wow. So we delivered the food and we connected them with the right social services until the mother was bled out of the hospital. Yeah. So I don't think people in, like I'm in San Diego and my, my family's like, I think you're overreacting, Stephanie. And I'm like, I am not effing overreact. Sorry, I'm not overreacting. I am telling you what the experience is like in a very unique place. There's no place like New York in terms of demographics, in terms of level of poverty, in terms of density, in terms of the use of public transportation systems. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's been hardest hit. Yep, absolutely. So those are you know, some really good qualitative measures, but you know, it's a, my understanding is test scores and all these things that we can debate back and forth, you know, they're imperfect, but they kind of give you a benchmark to, to iterate against. Um, is there any quantitative impact that you've seen on this? And again, I'm, Feel yeah, free to talk about the, the negative and positive, but like I'm, I'm really interested to know like what what the impact is. And I guess the reason I ask is is this a model going forward to actually improve the education experience really like COVID, or like is is the old system actually the best system? The old system is not the best system. So let me take your last. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The old system is failing millions of children. Okay. There are many children who are doing well in the current in the old system, the system before before COVID. Okay, but there are so, so many that are not doing well. And I am somebody who in our organization believes in, in outcomes, right? So you, you should be very flexible with your inputs, but be very rigid in terms of the outcomes that you expect. And so, um, you know, we, um, I think that there is, I hate saying this because I think right now people are just trying to survive. And like, I get it. I'm a CEO working full time. Plus I have two kids that were homeschooling and it is exhausting and it's hard to do both jobs. Well, there's one of them yelling. Um, so I think that, um, I think that there is an opportunity if there's a silver lining, let's call it a silver lining. There's a tremendous opportunity to rethink learning. And I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's definitely get into that. But maybe, and I I asked like four questions at once. So I apologize for that. But getting back getting back to like the the quantitative aspect, like have you seen any degradation in like in like scores or anything like that? 
what we decided. We decided we were gonna we decided we were gonna grade people. Oh, sorry. We decided there are a variety of ways to think about it. So you can think about your state tests, um, which are uh, proficiency tests. Yeah. Um, so do you know the material? Have you mastered the material? You can think about your um, your growth um, tests that measure growth. Have you how have you gone from A to B, and how does that compare to other people, other kids in your grade level who started A? And how fast they progress over a year. Yeah. Okay, there is going to be serious learning loss in this country. Yeah. So there typically is what's con- what's called summer learning slide, it, which is even debated now. Uh, it was used to be kind of dogma, but it's now debated. The COVID learning slide is going to be real, but it is it's going to be real because I'll give you an example: Philadelphia Public School District. Not a single district student has received remote learning to date. So think about that. Hmm. 12 weeks. So what have they been doing? This is where the bureaucracy and like from New York's perspective, what, what, what's been happening is that um, the charter schools and the private schools, especially the Catholic schools, because the lion's share of, of private schools in places like Philadelphia, where you're serving an underserved demographic, are Catholic schools, whether or not the kids themselves are Catholic. They have been very nimble. We have two of our um, Catholic blended learning schools pivoted, no learning lost. Um, they, what, the district and then the charter schools are leading the way. The Catholic schools and the charter schools are leading the way, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. The district schools have had issues related to teacher contracts and time, time that teachers are expected to spend in a virtual classroom. And in New York City, at one point, the mayor said, we're banning, we're banning Zoom. And this is after we had already spent four weeks on Zoom with all of our students and families. And so they ended up relenting. The mayor relented and Zoom actually ended up adding some safety protocols. Um, but I'm just giving you an example of how the freight train operates, not, not through any fault of its own, but because of the structure versus you know, the pace car. Mm-hmm. So back to metrics, I didn't answer your question. <laughs> we, um, we made the decision, what we take, we take two sets of, we, we, take a, we collect data in a variety of ways. But that we publish, we put all of our data on our website, and we, we feel as a matter of principle we should do that, that parents should have that information, we share it with parents, and that the public should have that information because we're receiving public dollars. So we put that on our website every year we have since we started this work. Um, and you can go online and look, look at every year's worth of results. And we, we, we publish two sets of, of, of data on two sets of tests, proficiency tests and NWA, which is a nationally normed test, which um, helps you understand growth. Um, and we had already taken, NWA is, tw- is three times a year. So New York City DOE canceled the state tests. So we weren't gonna take that. Um, our kids were not gonna take that. Although they were gearing up for it. And they had already been gearing up for it. Um, we had already taken the NWA, which is taken three times a year. There's a test at the beginning of the year to assess where the kid is. There's a test at the middle of the year to assess their progress to help you figure out what kind of changes you want to make for that child in that classroom. Um, and there's a test at the end of the year. 
we asked ourselves, do we want, do we want to administer the NWEA? And our, our decision was no, not this year. We will next year. The reason we don't want to do it this year is because we were not confident that it, they would be valid results because you don't have an adult in the room actually mm. monitoring how, who's taking the test. Yeah. And, and how much, you know, so we, we decided it, like it wasn't going to give us useful information right. that we could be using to, 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 to make pivots. Yeah. Where is the biggest learning loss going to be? It's going to be around not having structured days, um, losing a, a relative and what goes on. It's going to be related to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's going to be related to ending up in a shelter because your undocumented parents can't pay rent. Yeah. That, that's what it's going to end up being related in for our kids. Yeah. Most. So given that, like what happens in September? Like all these kids come back, maybe, maybe the schools are open, maybe they're not. They've had a summer of maybe unstructured, they maybe have lost a parent. They've, one of, one of my commenters has said, hey, the Census Bureau has highlighted that one third of Americans have clinical anxiety or depression because of this. Like what happens next fall? Yeah, so let me just underline that the fact that you're absolutely right. Um, like I want the schools to open sooner, not later. We, um, we have seen, uh, an uptick in depression and suicide ideation among our families when we we check in with our family our parents once a week and we check in with students once a day um, because we have two teachers per classroom and we have an ops team that can actually check in with parents and our after school program is taking on some of that burden as well um and so we've had to increase our social services now um what happens in september according to Everyone we're talking to in New York, we st we're going to end up starting the year off remotely. And wow. so schools will not be, will, there are four tiers of essential programs and schools, schools and churches, <laughs> which is just messed up, but schools and churches are in the fourth tier, right? So first um, hospitals, first responders second um businesses and i can't remember what the third is but um it's, it's another layer of business but the fourth are churches and schools and so right now the state and the mayor are gradually opening up um i don't what we've been told is so we have a longer school day a longer school year our summer is really short so there we already kind of hedge against the against the summer learning slide. So we end school. My daughter's school ends next week. Um, our schools don't end until uh, close to the end of June. And then we start up in August. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because our kids are entering school behind. Yeah. They're entering school behind their more affluent peers. And we have to make up the time with them. We make the decision to make up the time with them. Right. That being said, um, our big question is, so we have six different scenarios. Okay, one is start the year off normal. Then there are five other ones, which, it, which is the most likely scenario, which is you're not gonna start the year off normal. We think the most likely scenario, there is a bunch of different permutations of different groups of kids, some spending either different days or different hours uh, at the bricks and mortar school, while others are spending time in distance learning at home. So that is what we think 
the most likely scenario is. And what we would do, you know, you, you can cut it lots of different ways, but you can bring in three different grade levels, kinder, third, and fifth, if you wanted to, um, on Monday, Tuesday, I'm sorry, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can bring in the other kids on Thursday and Tuesday and rotate. They're, they're, we have a 35-page, single-page, single-space document that lays out the different scenarios. Um, and we have what's called a solution squad. So each scenario has what we're calling a solution squad, which is a parent, a school leader, um, or assistant principal, an ops person, operations person, um, somebody who, who, who focuses on character, because character um, virtue formation is really important to our schools, our public schools and our private schools. Um, and then somebody who is, um, and then, so it's, it's, a, it's a group of key stakeholders. And their job is to pressure tense, pressure test the scenario, right? So what if X happens? What if Y happens? What if Z happens? How, how would we respond? How would we pivot? We think we have one chance to get this right if we're going to have any credibility with families. Mm -hmm. right? So we, we are really spending a lot of time talking with the nation's leading charter school leaders, the nation's leading private school leaders, um, some district school leaders who we think are um, especially strong um, and, and more nimble, and coming up with a plan. And what we think is likely in New York City is that, and that's going to be different than in Ohio and then in other states where they're already opening up society more quickly. Yeah. I'm curious to understand what the, how the parents are managing this. And one of the reasons I ask is, you know, one of the undercurrents of our education system is it's kind of a de facto um, daycare and babysitter is the wrong term, but like a way for parents who have to work to put their kids in a place where they're safe and can learn. Obviously that's been disrupted. And I think a lot of parents, you know, are, are at home with their kids, but say come September when the schools are closed, when businesses are open, have you had conversation with parents and how they, how they're there to navigate, like who watches the, the fourth grader who would normally be, you know, set upon by child services if they're home alone? Yeah. So for our, well, let me talk about kind of, um, people who I know personally in my social network and also talk about people I know personally who are part of our school network because it's a different, it's a different demographic. And yep. so in our, in our school network, let me start there. Um, parents are paycheck to paycheck. Now, not even paycheck to paycheck. And so and if they're undocumented, so we have a largely Latino demographic, we don't ask whether they're undocumented or documented, but we, we have a strong sense that a good number of them are undocumented because of how they react when you ask them for information. And they're not getting the federal stimulus money. So they are desperate to work. And they are in service industries, so cleaning, um, restaurants, and um, other kinds of service industries. And so um, they're going to want, who watches their children? Grandmother, auntie. Um, it's typically a grandmother, auntie, cousin. It's, it's a relative. Okay, in my network, um, which is middle, middle income um, plus and, and up, middle income and up, um, uh, parents are thinking, 
you know what, if I send my kid to a private school right now, I don't want to pay for half the year if it's remote learning or if it's two weeks, on, you know, a week on, a week off, or if it's two days on, three days off. Like, I'd rather save my money and homeschool my child because we've been doing it for the past 12 weeks. The first three weeks were really, really hard, but the last three weeks have been actually pretty good. And so I think, and then there's, a, there's another group of, 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 of children. So 5 million children in this country have, um, have um, underlying conditions. Um, and so that's, so I, I have a child with cerebral palsy who has chronic lung disease. That's my son, my five-year-old. And um, my husband and I, since we, we pulled our kids out early before our school closed because we were worried about him because he, he ends up in the hospital with a flu. And we struggle with the idea of letting him be a little boy. He's five years old. He needs to be with other kids. He needs to be playing with them. And there's, yes, he's, he can get a lot from us, but it's just not normal not to yeah. have that. So some parents are going, so there are 5 million kids with underlying conditions. They're going to be making decisions about, and what's interesting is that the, the state's not going to be able to um, force them, force attendance, state attendance rules. And so I do think we're going to see um, an increase in, um, in homeschooling. So I want to just give you some just perspectives, some numbers. I, I pulled them out. 50 million students attend government-operated schools at the elementary and secondary levels. I'll call these government or district schools. 3.3 million students in 44 states in D.C. attend public charter schools. They're privately operated, as I said, and publicly funded. 88% of those are not-for-profit. It's a $440 million um, in program funding and 219,000 teachers. They're all free for the, for the family. 5 million, which is roughly 10% of students in the U.S. attend private schools, and 2 million students are being homeschooled. Let's say you double that 2 million, right? And, and yeah. you, you take that 5 million of students who are in private schools and you say half of them end up doing homeschooling for one year until there's a vaccine um, or until the CDC lifts their guidelines. Because really it's the CDC that's making the, de the determination and then the state, right? So we're, we're advocating right now for there to be, this, the, the, the mayor, the district is saying only 30% of your kids can be in, your, in a classroom but they're not thinking about the fact that there are many buildings that are under capacity. So we, we're advocating that you should think about it in terms of the square footage of the building, um, not in, in terms of necessarily the class size. And we're also saying it should go up to 50% because if you think about homogenous groups, I'm getting really wonky here. So stop me if I am. No, this is fascinating. Um, so we're advocating for them to be more flexible about how you meet the CDC guidelines, right? Because there are CDC guidelines, then there are state guidelines, and then there are local guidelines. And so we are pushing at the state and local levels, especially the state level, because Governor Cuomo is essentially taking over. He's the, he's the King Cuomo now. Um, he's basically taken over, you know, the state. And so, and, and you know, he's, he's gotten emergency powers. 
And so he can do a lot of things and that he wasn't able to do before COVID. So we're advocating for more flexibility in how you meet CDC guidelines. Not that you should ignore CDC guidelines, right. but that there are creative ways to structure a day where you can get half your kids in school as opposed to a third of your kids in school. Think about the difference that would make for a parent. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is you mentioned, you know, let's say private schools go down by even a million, a quarter of what the numbers are. My understanding of private schools and, you know, we send our kid to a private school is that their margins are very thin. And yeah. if you get rid of, if you get rid of this, you know, 20, 30, 40% of their population, you know, the other 60%, and this is, I think, what college is going through right now, will be impacted as well. Um, and so there's, there are a lot of intertwined levers here that are going to have an immense impact with, you know, downstream effects on education. And, yep. you know, to your homeschooling point, what's interesting is I've heard from multiple sources. Um, so I think my brother-in-law is on the phone. They homeschool their four kids in Iowa. But they maybe spend three or four hours a day with their four kids, and the rest of the time is this free play on the backyard. One of our senior partners sends his kids to private school here in Dallas, and he's like, my kid gets his work done in two hours a day. What am I paying these private schools to do for four more hours? And so, you know, I'm curious to understand how much rethinking is going on in the minds of parents for this homeschooling piece and what the downstream effects are. Um, I think huge number, I think for, for families who are either homeschooling or who are sending their children to private schools, which is a, is a, is a certain group of families, I think, and it's, it's a smaller group than the overall group, right? Yeah. Well, meaningful. I think there, there are going to be some major shifts in that group, within that group. And I think that, I think that there are going to be shifts within the district, the district school group, the public, the, the, the traditional public school group, because um, whether their kid has an underlying condition, whether um, they've been, they've been, all they've been getting is worksheets and they're looking at these worksheets and they're completely uninspiring and they're like, what are my tax dollars going towards? Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to do this to my kid um, because I, it's wrong. Um, or like in my case, my daughter's second grade teacher has been amazing. My son's kindergarten teacher has been not amazing. And I learned things about the way that she operates because of this. Mm -hmm. And I've had conversations with the principal about my concerns. And so does that mean I don't want to send them back to the school? No, but does it mean I'm going to be more involved? Yes, in a different way, in a different way. And so I will just give you one statistic to underline your point. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, so again, the, the bulk of, of private schools are Catholic, um, the bulk of private faith-based schools are Catholic schools and, in the United States. They have said that over the next four years, one-third to one-half of all Catholic schools are going to shut down because of COVID and the related economic upheaval in the United States. Wow. That is going to devastate so many people. Yeah. Um, and there will, have to be, there will have to be entrepreneurs and others who are rethinking and reimagining what schooling can look like in this country. And it's already happening. There, there has been, there have been people doing it, but now there's, there's, it's been amplified, right? A loudspeaker on these ideas for, right? Like Amazon Fresh. I don't know how many people are ordering on Amazon Fresh as opposed to going into the grocery store. Like I'm doing all my shopping on Amazon Fresh now. 
I hate going into Vons. I love doing Amazon Fresh. That wasn't, I, I used to go to Vons all the time. I used to like shopping at the grocery store. Um, <laughs> there's right. been a shift. Now, am I gonna go back to Vons or am I gonna stick with Amazon after COVID? It's an interesting question, right? I don't know, um, but um, I think that question is, is relevant to education, right? Yeah. I mean, once you've been exposed to Netflix, are you gonna pay for cable, right? Or no. you're, you're gonna start seeing higher education and, and, and high schools, I would say, starting to have modules like, like Netflix, where you have a, a whole bunch of things, a um, whole bunch of options that are being geared towards you and your interests and your major that you get to choose from, that you get to take and watch, that you get to interact with on Zoom or whatever, whatever program they're using, um, whatever platform they're using, and, and then you, you master it. And so are people going to, I think, I think I'm not, a, I'm not a higher education expert at all, but I do think, I do know people in higher education who are, who are already laying off huge percentages of their workforce and do not see it getting any better. They, they think that a, a good third of colleges will not survive um, COVID and, and the economic, and the economic challenge of co challenge related to COVID, but it'll be very interesting to see which entrepreneurs are rethinking education. So yeah. it's seven yeah well it, i i'm willing so just as an admin note normally we keep these to an hour and i, I think folks can certainly log off if they need to as long as you're willing to stay on i think i'd love to explore some more of these topics you can you can call call uncle at any point um, no no worries totally understand so one of the one of the questions that you raised was what catholic schools and let's just say that half of them do close and I don't know what the numbers are, but that's, let's just say half a million new students flow back into the public schools. We're seeing municipal budgets likely come under pressure, which likely translates into lower school funding. How are you guys preparing for the inevitable reduction in funds and then potential influx of more students? Like that just seems like it's compounding a really difficult situation. Yeah. The need is greater, right? So we had, um, we did, we did, um, we did, virtual um virtual open houses because we were we're launching two new campuses of our charter network in new york and a brand new catholic school in cincinnati ohio called romero academy and we've been doing phone calls we've been doing um like targeted phone calls we've been doing radio ads we've been doing we didn't do we did billboards but they weren't so effective because people weren't driving so um we typically would do door to door our enrollment in New York City has sky, our enrollment interest, right? So you do a lottery if you have more people in, who want a seat than seats available. We always do a lottery at our schools because we always have more interest than we have available seats. But the interest has actually skyrocketed during COVID. Mm. And so, and there's need, the need is greater, right? So it's helping people with rent, helping people with food, helping people with, um, um, the tools that they need for good, effective remote learning. Um, now, what are we doing budget-wise? It has been brutal. My board is what I like. I think um, hope, not fear, is actually a good um, is a good. But I think the Stockdale paradox is probably a 
a better way to think about it because it's hope, but rooted in brutal reality, like with kind of a recognition of brutal reality, right? Admiral Stockdale, POW, um, and, um, and he survived, and he survived torture. He survived so many different things. Um, and he said, when he was asked by Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, what, what, why did, who, who didn't make it? He said, the optimists. And Jim Collins said, what do you mean the optimists? And he said, there were the people who said, oh, we're going to be done with it by Christmas. And then Christmas came and they weren't out. Okay, we're going to be done with it by Easter. Easter came and they weren't out. And they became so depressed. Um, I think what I am doing with my team is preparing them for a long winter. We are doing that related to the budgets. Um, all the philanthropy shows that, um, especially if you look at the Great Recession, that GDP and philanthropic giving were like tied hand in hand, right? As GDP dropped, philanthropic giving, we're, we're a great country of givers, right? Civil society in this country and philanthropy in this country. And New York is the philanthropic capital of the world. I will say that we have raised $300,000 for our emergency fund in just 10 weeks. And by 200 plus people who have never before given to us. And what does that tell you? It tells you this is a great country that's going through a really hard, long um, winter. And, but that the people are good and salt of the earth and they want to help. And these are people who don't live in New York, many of them. Yeah. Sorry. So no. five minutes. How do you want to end this? No. So I think I'd love to maybe transition to the hope that you see. And I love the, I love the Stockdale paradox. Um, you know, the POWs in Vietnam have a close personal family tied to us. And so I've, I've been, I've admired them from afar for a long time. And I think that's a great way to put it now, but you know, you got to be focused on the reality you have, but also, have that hope that things will get better. We are an entrepreneurial nation, and amidst crisis, organizations and, 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 and institutions, if done right, come out stronger. So what do you see as the silver linings of this for the edu for education K through 12 that will transform the way our kids learn, and what are the upsides to what we're experiencing right now? Yeah, it's this crisis, any crisis, I, what do they call it, a black swan event? Um, I, I don't know that language, but I've, I've heard it being used. I, I think, um, I think this crisis is going to sift. It's going to sift. Um, the, the strong, the people who have strong culture, who have great talent, who have good financial, um, models. And those people are going to rise because they have those assets and they're going to leverage those assets to become even stronger than they were before because they're going to be really, really focused. And, um, and those that didn't have strong culture, that don't have good talent, that didn't have good financial models um, or structures are, are going to. So I, I do think we're going to see fewer government schools, um, not, 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 not because they're all bad, but the big, the big bureaucratic, the ones in big bureaucratic districts, not the ones in necessarily small districts. Um, I think we're going to see fewer of those. I think we're going to see more charter schools. I think we're going to see more virtual schools. I think we're going to see more hybrid hybrids, and I think the hybrids can be. I don't think we even know what they can be. I think that they're going to be. Um, we're going to be imagining them over the next four years, and I think that um, 
the hope I would say is um, I, I get my hope from my faith. I'm Catholic. Um, so my Christian faith is what gives me my hope. It's what gives me my peace. Um, Cause I think I've had anxiety and I just talk to the big guy upstairs and gives me some peace. But I think, and I think there are a lot of other Americans like me who would say the same. And, but the other is, um, I want to be hopeful. <laughs> I want to be hopeful about this country. I think, um, I think, I think there, there are some really good bones. I think our foundation is, is really good. I think we've gotten far from it. Um, but I, I am hopeful that it will help us persevere. And I think the goodness of the people in this country and wanting to help. So I guess that's how I'll end it. No, that's great. And, you know, folks like you and others on this line, like Aditya, who are kind of leaning into the education, entrepreneurship space, I think that's going to be what will transform and get us out of this. So Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. We'll definitely have to have you on again and kind of delve into more of these topics. There were so many threads we could have pulled tonight, but thanks for your work on the front lines. Uh, God bless you all. And uh, again, thank you so much. We'll chat soon. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care. Thank right, you. Bye. Thanks you all for joining another edition of Iran.